This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast. A very warm welcome to the third Property Professionals podcast, jointly hosted by Charles Russell Speechley's and Savills. And thank you for joining us. Today's topic is strategic land tax time bomb, in which we look at possible tax changes to the taxation of strategic land and the impact this will have and is already having on the market. My name's Ian Brothwood, and I'm a real estate partner at Charles Russell Speechley and the head of the strategic land team. I'm joined by Tim Watson, director and joint head of the combined Oxford and Reading development teams at Savills, and Zoe Thomas, head of tax at Smith and Williamson's Bristol, and who specialises in land tax. Just to set the scene, COVID is costing the UK a lot of money, estimated 260 to 390 billion, and will have to be paid for at some point going forward. Even before the pandemic, the government has been looking at the significant gains for landowners on the sale of consented land for residential development with some interest. With the budget deferred until next year, tax rises on the horizon. It seems a good time to look at what steps might be taken and how that might impact on the market. Uh, Zoe, when talking about strategic land, we often think about multiple landowners. What tax structures are you seeing being used at the moment to mitigate tax in that situation? Hi, Ian. Well, there there are quite a few different structures to use, but probably the three most common that I'm seeing at the moment are land pooling, the collaboration agreement or the land pooling trust. They work in slightly different ways and may be beneficial for different types of landowners when there are many landowners or when there are smaller kind of groups of people. They will have positives and negatives. Um, I suppose the most common is the general land pooling. That really happens when there is a transfer of an interest in land that everyone is sharing in. The transfer of land happens um, pretty much from capital gains tax right at the beginning when their conditional contract, which has been completed or exchanged. The trouble is with the land pooling, disposal for tax purposes pretty much takes place when the land pooling has been entered into right up front. So the problem is that there could be some dry tax because the landowner will be seen as disposing of their interest in land into the land pool, but they won't have received anything yet because it's kind of before any planning permission has been received or any disposal from the developer has received in terms of cash. Um, So that's one downside of the land pooling. It's probably the most straightforward agreement, but that's one of the negatives. And of course, the other point is that if planning permission is never granted, it may be difficult to extract the land that is your share of it and get it back out again. That's interesting, actually. I mean, just in terms of a wider issue as well, I think you were alluding to that, is that by pooling, you're effectively entering into a joint venture where your land is effectively pooled. And you need to be absolutely sure that those you're joining up with and pooling with are people that you're comfortable working with over a long term relationship. Absolutely. Um, And the collaboration agreement, and and these can be in any form, so it could be a joint venture, it could be a partnership, etc. The collaboration agreement is really an agreement which is binding on specific conditions. And so disposal typically happens when planning permission has been granted. And then there are equalisation agreements between the landowners where one landowner may pay another landowner in order for the equalisation kind of matrix that would be set up. So the difference is there between the generic land pooling 
is that tax typically doesn't arise until the disposal into the collaboration agreement, which is generally on planning permission. So you're likely to have some cash that you've received from the developer in order to be able to pay any capital gains tax that is arising. Unfortunately, where you have equalisation payments made between the different landowners, there would be tax for each of the landowners on the receipts they received, but the landowner that is making the payments out to other landowners does not get a deduction tax against a payment. So if one landowner has received 50 million and they're paying out 10 each to other landowners, they don't get relief for that, the main payments they're making. So therefore, there is a, an effective double tax as the cash received is being taxed twice, once in, say, landowner A, but also in the hands of landowner B, C and D when they receive it, but no relief for that. The tricky bit is the trading aspect of this. And obviously, the, the main headline point is double charge to CGT under a pool trust, which works, but under this alternative arrangement is, is open to attack, as I see it from the revenue. So obviously, the big question out here, uh, which I'd like to turn to now, is just the question of CGT um, and likely tax changes and, and how that will impact yeah. not only on these pooling collaboration arrangements with multiple landowners, but obviously for individual landowners where perhaps they're just bringing forward in their own name, their own land. In terms of the capital gains tax, Rishi Sunak has asked for a review to identify kind of areas in tax where the present rules don't actually meet their policy intent. But he asked for that over the summer. So um, a number of bodies are kind of reviewing that. The most likely things that we think are going to change are in capital gains, tax reliefs, allowances, exemptions and capital losses where you're allowed to use them and how long you're allowed to hold them for. We think that what the revenue is trying to do is to level up how capital gains tax are taxed in comparison to other types of income, such as earned income, kind of like um, work from your employment or just general income tax, because obviously there is a very different tax rate between them. What we are expecting is that the rate of capital gains tax would go up. It's either currently 20% for where you get the old entrepreneur's relief um, or business asset disposal relief now, 20% generally, 28% when you're disposing of residential property. I'm expecting it to probably go to the mid-30s, 30%, but eventually it may become equal with um, income tax, which is currently top rate is 45%. How much warning would we typically receive for a, a tax change of that scale coming in? So um, we're expecting a budget. So although this, this budget has been kind of postponed, they still have to have a budget for 2021 before the end of this fiscal year. So we're expecting it kind of to be um, late January, early February, because it has to be before the 5th of April 2021. There could be an increase from the 6th of April this year. Um, we are hoping that the government understand kind of the situation the country is in and that they do not want to kind of I suppose scare people into not selling property, holding it, um, and they want still to see transactions happening. Otherwise, you clog up the development market, not just for the homes that are needed, but also for the first time buyers, etc. So we're hoping that it will be staggered. I'm imagining there would be some increase from the 6th of April, but then there may be staggering kind of over the next three to five years. Tim, can I bring you in here? Do you see that impacting on the market going forward and actually in the short term and going forward? 
Um, I think if there was a, a known significant tax increase coming in the future, that would certainly cause an increase in activity in the short term. I mean, hmm. at the moment, the land market is relatively robust. We did see at the back end of last year, following the run up to the election, when it looked like there might be um, a Labour government. And I think actually across the political spectrum, there was um, talk of potential changes to the taxation regime. And some landowners at that point did consider potentially trading um, allocated or draft allocated land where they may have typically sought to go further into the planning process before trading. However, that was driven by, I'd guess, it wasn't widespread and it was driven by other factors rather than simply pure taxation. At the moment, we're seeing quite a a lot of um, activity. It's a very strong market at the moment, partly driven by a pent up demand that's built up during lockdown but partly due to the stamp duty holiday. And so whether that means that um, there will be a, a drop off and when that comes to an end next year, um, I don't know. But I certainly think that um, in the short term, people will, will try and close out deals as quickly as they can um, to beat the tax changes that might come in. Yeah, Tim, can I just ask you, and, and how do you see those deals being structured? I mean, would you expect or would people possibly just sell land, say, agricultural, just a bit above agricultural value with an overage to cover the uplift if that's expected? I would, I would certainly um, expect if landowners are selling land earlier in the planning cycle than they would typically, they will be seeking overages. Uh, and so so uh, I suppose you'd, it would be unconditional agricultural plus hope value and then an, an overage on top of that. Yeah. And Zoe, just just out of interest, in terms of tax treatment for a landowner taking an overage, could, could you just explain to us how that might look? Yeah, typically when you where you have an overage agreement, um, you're entering into a right because you've got a right over some future form of income. It's not part of the disposal for the property, so it's not seen as a capital or land. It's not seen as um of that interest anymore. So you've got, therefore, a separate asset that you're disposing of. So what you need to look at is kind of the value of that right at the time that you receive it. And then when you dispose of it, unfortunately, it's typically disposed of as income because you've received it as part of the developer kind of paying you for the value of the land and what they're going to be doing on top of it. So you're seen as kind of being part of their overall trade, which is trading in um, either residential commercial but it's all trading so any receipts that you are likely to receive from an overage agreement are typically taxed as trading and therefore taxed under income tax. So you could be up at 45 percent so landowners thinking to bring forward sites uh, with that type of deal structure really need to think carefully about that possible tax take on the overage payment down the track. And just out of interest, Tim, where have you seen freezer clauses? Because they've been quite popular over the last year or so. Uh, How how are you seeing those being used and and any thoughts on really to what extent they're actually meaningful or useful? Yeah, we've um, over the last, as you say, over the last year, 18 months, um, we did see a definite rise in in the inclusion of of tax freezer clauses in in promotion agreements and, and options and hybrids which would effectively, um, in in the event that a tax rate exceeds a certain threshold or value, then the landowner would have the right to effectively freeze the sale and the agreement at that point. So so that was something that we saw a lot of last year. Um, it's, It's less of a talking point now. But I suspect it could well come back onto the radar again um, with some of the things that we've been talking about today. Yeah, 
No, that's interesting. I mean, we, we've had the same experience and certainly in terms of the freezer rate, we typically find that set around about 60 percent for CGT. Yes. Um, at which point, if that rate is 60 percent or more, then there's a, typically a three year freezer period where the parties just sit and wait to see if it's going to adjust down from that rate. I suppose, Zoe, given what you're saying, while rates may not hit 60 percent, I think it's fair to say that given the amount of debt the government needs to repay, the rates are likely to stay at an increased level, assuming CGT rates go up for really quite a long time. I imagine so, yes. Yeah. yeah. And in that case, there needs to be provision in those agreements for for what happens next. So if the tax rate stays high for three years, um, at some point, things need to move on. The planning commission, if you've got one, will will have a shelf life. And so we, you need to factor in provision to, for what happens after that. Yeah, I think I think you're right, Tim. I mean, typically at the end of three years, if it's still 60 percent and above, then I'm afraid the deal goes ahead for the landowner. He's going to have to swallow the tax. Uh, I mean, commercially, you kind of get it for the developer, the promoter. They're going to say, well, you know, we've incurred three, five hundred thousand pounds worth of planning costs. And we've also if we don't go ahead, there's a massive loss of opportunity here because we've got a site here, which yeah. If you're a developer, there's uh, all the houses to be sold and the profit on that. So I think commercially, the reality is that whilst these freezer clauses may go in, they'll be set at such rates and for such short periods that they won't actually really bite in reality. I think we've covered off quite a lot of ground here, which has been very helpful. I'm just wondering between us, what what are the sort of takeaways? Um, Zoe, can I start with you? Yeah, sure. So certainly what I'm advising my clients is if they have got any ideas or what thoughts they're going to do with their property stroke land and they were planning on doing something in the next year, would they want to bring it forward? Also, as you've already commented, if they're thinking of taking overage agreements, they've really got to think of how long far in advance those payouts are likely to be because if they are looking at three to five years further out, they may well be at quite a high tax rate. It's just difficult to say. So I would say certainly start to look at doing things in the next few months if they were doing going to do them in the next year or so. And I'd agree no, with that. Really- so at the moment, the, the, the market is relatively robust, particularly at the sites of, of sub 150 units. There's a, a very strong SME market out there um, looking at opportunities of 40, 50 up to 150 um, and on the strategic side as well. Um, and so now is a good time to, uh, to consider um, bringing land forward. So uh, the tax changes that may be coming around the corner notwithstanding, I suppose all eyes are on um, what may happen with the the end of the furlough scheme and and potential unemployment figures and how that may affect the wider economy. And so I think we have a a window at the moment where, um, you know, the market is relatively buoyant and uh, people are bringing sites forward. Mm, Yeah, that's really that's really helpful, Tim. And I think my, my sort of overview take on all of this is that whatever the government do, and this is all very political, but they will be treading a very fine line and a balance between ensuring that they deliver on their housing promise, ensuring that the economy keeps going, and thirdly, ensuring that the tax take is going to be sufficient, that they're able to continue to sustain the borrowing that they've got out there, uh, and that people are happy to borrow to UK PLC going forward. So uh, it's it's a fine balance, uh, and I'm sure they'll be very mindful of all of those three factors. That just leaves me to say thank you to our guest Zoe Thomas from Smith and Williamson and thank you for listening to this Property Professionals podcast brought to you by Charles Russell Speechless and Savills. So it's goodbye from me, Ian Brothwood of Charles Russell Speechless and Tim Watson from Savills. And if you have any questions or 
requests for further topics, please get in touch. This is a Charles Russell Speechley's podcast.